with me, please, to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And we pick up again the exposition of Genesis. We read there in verse 16, verse 16, just after that promise which we just recited. Genesis 3, 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. This is the written and the inerrant word of God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, bless us. Open this text to us that we may know your grace and your chastisement unto our sanctification. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a very prominent word in the scripture reading. If you take out your bulletin and just compare your sermon outline to the text, there's a, there's a very prominent word in the scripture lesson there in verse 17. It, it, it says here, um, in verse 17, cursed is the ground for your sake. And you may wonder, in the sermon title, I don't mention curse. Instead, I say a sentence of chastisement. And the three points of the sermon are sentenced to chastisement after grace is revealed, sorrow and childbirth and the rule of husbands, and sweat for food until we return to the ground as dust. And you may wonder, Pastor, uh, are you going woke on me here? Going a little watering down the Bible, sort of avoid that curse word? Uh, why do you think I didn't mention it? I think it's because... The curse was on the ground, and it was a curse that had an effect upon Adam. There was a chastisement of the woman, and all who follow her, who give birth to babies, that they have a pain. But there is no curse pronounced directly upon Adam and Eve, whereby, by comparison, we read in verse number 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. This is a sermon about chastisement. This is a sentence that's pronounced. It is a sentence. But it's a sentence about the chastisement of people that they may be transformed and that they might be driven back to their God, not permanently cursed, and separated from God. If we get in that position where we think, hey, there's no hope for me. I'm cursed. I'm a goner. Well, then why bother coming back? Why bother seeking God? 
or any change in my position. I have no hope, and if I have no hope, I might as well give up and just give myself to my lusts. Forget about it. I, I was raised in New Jersey, okay? Come on, give me a little slack here. Forget about it. Might as well give up. But let's consider the first verse, first point of the sermon, sentenced to chastisement after grace is revealed. Let me uh, read to you from an old commentator who has the same view as mine. It's not a view that is a novel interpretation of the Bible, a new interpretation that pops up after 20 centuries of church history. Let me read to you from Matthew Henry, who was ministering from the 1660s up into the middle, uh, early years of the 1700s. And here's what he writes, great Puritan. He says, Adam himself is not cursed as the serpent was, but only the ground for his sake. God had blessings in Adam, even the holy seed. There was a blessing in Adam. Destroy it not. For that blessing is in it, Isaiah the prophet says in 65.8. He had blessings in store for him. Therefore, he is not directly and immediately cursed, but as it were at second hand, unquote. See, there was no direct curse on him because God had something for Adam to do. He had a seed which would be given to Eve, and then that would become the seed of the woman, which would lead down to the Savior, Jesus who would redeem his people, bring salvation to the world. And that promise was given in the very previous word. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God has plans for you too. He's not about cursing you. And those plans aren't like getting a nice little rainbow sticker on your forehead or getting an erasable tattoon. I'm a dream. I have a real potentiality. You know, it's not like shallow stuff like that. His promise, his plan for you is that you, when you trust in Jesus, are incorporated into Christ. You have union with Christ. He's the head of the body. And you have a great place in Christ. You're given dignity. You're given a plan for your life to glorify God and enjoy him forever and to serve him working in the vineyard of your families at home. I just am so excited to see these little kids in Sunday school. These two little ones over here, they were so cute today. These two little boys were popping their heads over the edge of the pews. And I was so cool to see you and your Kids were wandering up here, a little out of, you know, like further than this was. And they just both went up and brought them back. No kicking and screaming. They just know who's in charge, okay? And that's the way parenting should happen. You just step in. You do what's necessary. You bring them back. And, and so you're, you're fulfilling God's plan for these children in your life. And we have a glorification of God also in the church, in Sunday school. And in your jobs, wherever you go, working with your hands, working with your brains, whatever you're doing, you're glorifying God. And so that is why God's not cursing you. There is a seed in you 
which is meant to pass on the seed of the gospel, the seed of gospel truth in the lives of others. And note that the gospel promise is put first before these sentences in verses 16 through 19. In the case of the serpent, he doesn't get the gospel promise. He gets the, go- he gets the curse. It happens before verse 15. You are cursed. Whereas we hear the chastisement after the gospel has been proclaimed. God's not going to surrender his creation to the malign influence of the serpent. He is going to keep enmity between the line of serpent and the line of Eve. And when people buy into the devil, they're going to be attacking the world. They're going to be attacking the church. The world is going to be attacking the church. And there's an enmity there going on down through the centuries. And then it all leads up to this point at the cross where the seed of the woman dies on the cross sacrificially. The the seed of the serpent, those unbelieving Pilate and those wicked Pharisees and all the mocking crowds, they think they got Jesus. But then he rises from the dead and he takes out the devil. You see, what's going on here is that God is setting up a blessing in advance, and then he has the chastisement to follow, that we would be transformed according to the correction given in verses 16 through 19. There's another difference in the treatment of the serpent and the treatment of Adam and Eve, that that God is bringing a dialogue about a conversation with Adam and Eve. If you look back in chapter 3, we see that God confronts the man. He talks to them. Verse 9, where are you? And then he says again, verse 11, who told you you were naked? And then he says to the woman, what is this you have done? You see, we so often take the questions of God and we get offended. Okay, oh boy, he's asking me questions. The preacher's saying something to me today, you know, like I'm preaching this Bible verse and challenging you, and we, we take that the wrong way. We take that as, get out of my stuff, get out of my face. But that's the love of God. He's coming into our life asking us questions, so we'll start processing our life according to his good news and according to his standard. Did God ask the devil any questions? No, he just cursed him. He had no time for the devil. He just laid down the hammer, verse 14. And so I want you here today to consider the fact that pain can be used of God as a chastisement that will draw us to God. When we experience the physical pain, we come to God with it. C.S. Lewis has a favorite quote. Pain insists upon being attended to. This is in his classic book, The Problem of Pain. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf 
world. And that pain is meant to rouse us so we don't dwell in the dust. You see, the devil is given this sentence. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And that's where he stays. Even in Isaiah 65, verse 25, Isaiah 65, 25, when the redemption in the new heaven and earth, new earth is rolled out, it says the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Okay, so this is definitely heaven. Okay, this is the new heaven and the new earth because wolves and lambs, they don't feed together down here. Okay, but what happens? The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Oh, but something doesn't change. And dust shall be the serpent's food. But God's not going to leave you there. He is not going to leave you in that dust. He is prompting you to come out of your pain and come to him. Now let's consider the second point. Sorrow in childbirth and the rule of husbands. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This pain of childbirth was not a necessary pain if Adam and Eve had not fallen into sin. They were meant to be fruitful and multiply, chapter 1 and verse 28. And they were meant to have children, and it would have not been accompanied by this horrible pain. Matthew Henry writes, All the sorrows of this present time are so. Many are the calamities which human life is liable to of various kinds, and often repeated, the clouds returning after the rain. And no marvel that our sorrows are multiplied when our sins are. Both are innumerable evils. The sorrows of childbearing are multiplied, for they include not only the travailing throes, but the indispositions before, morning sickness, and the nursing toils and vexations after all. And after all, if the children prove wicked and foolish, they are more than ever the heaviness of the mother's heart that bore them. Thus are the sorrows multiplied. As one grief is over, another succeeds in this world. So I bring this sad message that there is sorrow associated with childbirth. And it's not just that 12-hour or 24-hour labor. It's all the things that follow. And that's a grief that we share. And I just ask you today to come to God with that grief. Go to God with it. And say, you know, I am complicit. I, I recognize, hey, I am a sinner. And I'm part of this fallen world. And I want my life from here on out to be dedicated to you to the best of my ability by the grace of God. And I will be faithful in the lives of those children. And I will do what I can. But I am going to come to you in the midst of my pain and my sorrow. Now, there's another aspect here of this sentence. It says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. 
It's translated here in the NKJV and the KJV as your desire shall be for your husband. And that's the same way it's been translated in the ESV all the way up until 2017. In 2018 or 19, they changed the words to a more contentious, in my view, inaccurate translation, where it says, her desire, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. It's an intentionally adversarial way of translation, zeroing in on one possible translation that it declares that the woman is uh, sentenced to be in a continual attitude of usurping and undermining the authority of the husband. You will be contrary to him. And that this is the sentence that God places upon the woman, which doesn't make sense to me. It does not make sense to me that part of a sentence is that you should be sentenced to not follow the order of creation. The order of creation is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that Adam was created first and then the woman. Even before the fall, Adam was meant to be the head of the family and the woman was meant to be in submission to the husband. But now, somehow, because of sin, is, is, is God sentencing the woman to be usurping that? I think not. And I am in agreement here with a wonderful commentary called uh, the Genesis Commentary of E.J. Young, who is an outstanding scholar from the 1930s, whose work predates a lot of the sexual uh, revolution stuff and the women feminist movement of the 50s and the 60s. And so I think he's a more reliable commentator on this point than many of our up-to-date commentators because he cannot be accused of being a, a reactionary responding to something in the culture. And so I'd suggest to you that when it says in verse 16, it should be, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And he compares this translation to chapter 4 and verse 7. If you go over to 4, 7, it says, this is the temptation of Cain by sin. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And E.G.A. Young quotes, I quote him, it is well to compare it with the similar language in Genesis 4-7. In that verse we read, and his, desi in, and his desire is unto thee. The meaning in this context of the fourth chapter is that what sin desires is what Cain will carry out. Sin's desire is unto Cain in the sense that Cain is a slave and must perform whatever sin's desire may be. However, in the present verse, 3.16, we may render, and unto thy husband is thy desire. It is obvious that the meaning here is the reverse of what is in the fourth chapter. Is it not clear that in this third chapter, the meaning cannot be that the desire of the woman is unto the husband so that he must do what she wishes? Is it not clear that the woman is not here pictured as a despot who compels the man to do the thing she desires? Plainly, this is not the meaning of the text, unquote. So I stand with E.J. E. Young, and I say to you instead a different understanding of the text. If you keep your finger in Genesis 3 and turn over to 1st, 
Let's turn over to Song of Solomon. Please turn over there a second. Song of Solomon. And we read, that's just after Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, right in the middle of your Bible. Song of Solomon, chapter 7 and verse 10. This is a very romantic chapter about married love. And it says in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. These are the only three appearances of this word. Teshua, Teshuka. It's Genesis 3.16, Genesis 4.7, and Song of Solomon, verse 10 of chapter 7. And here it's a desire clearly that is sexual desire. And the understanding of the text that I accept is that even though woman is going to go through pain and childbearing, she will continue to desire her husband in that special married way. That that pain and childbirth won't make say, oh no, not, not going there, because that could lead to something leading to pain. No, she still desires. And that is the understanding in which she desires her husband and he shall rule over her. And this is a rule which is a rule of not someone who is at enmity with her as there is enmity between uh, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, but it is rather the rule of a husband who loves her. And so we need to understand that this rule is not a patriarchal rule, which denigrates women and considers women to be less than men. It is rather a positional rule. It is a complementarian understanding of the Bible, which is one that we hold here in this church. And we understand that this is to be fulfilled, a rule in light of Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. In Ephesians 5.28, he who loves his wife loves himself. In Ephesians 5.33, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We are to be in submission to our husbands in the order of creation, even before the fall of man, that was established. Wives do not usurp authority. Simply because I say that that's not the meaning of this text, that women are uh, given a sentence of, 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 not, of, of not usurping authority. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It sure does happen. But that's a result of sin. You should not usurp your husband's authority. It is not your liberty to do so. Rather, we have that attitude which was like Sarah's. 1 Peter 3, 5, In former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being in submission to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. And so, Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, rule your wives in love. And the third point is the curse of sorrow and sweat. 
It means that man must live through difficulties, exertion, labor, toil, in order to make a living in this world. Work inherently is good. Please turn back with me to Ephesians 2.15. Ephesians 2.15. Before the fall, God made work, and he made it good. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And even today, our work can be good. Our work is good as it's given to God. Colossians 3 and verse 23. Whatever you do, do it heartily, heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Colossians 3, 23. But before the fall, work was no sweat. I'm not suffering doing this. This is what I was created to do, and I, I like working. After the fall, you got all these complicating features, thorns and thistles. You got all these so-called enemies of your work, things that are making it difficult. And it's in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. There's this dimension of struggle. When you're sweating, you're struggling. Man, sometimes when I'm up here, you see me sweating. That means Pastor Ned is struggling, okay? Pray for me, okay? When you're struggling, you're sweating. And I'm just saying to you right now that sweat is, is not a desired outcome. You know, it's horses that sweat. It's men that sp- perspire, right? And what do women do? They glow. Okay, sweat is not a desired outcome. And we see that in the, even in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 44 and 18, turn over there for a second, please, with me. Ezekiel 44 and verse 18. And there we read this about the priests. The priests were not supposed to be sweating. They were wearing clothing that would help prevent sweating. Linen is known for a clothing that a lot of people wear in the summertime, especially those British aristocracy to keep cool in India. Okay, well, here it is, linen. They shall have linen turbans on their head and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. Sweat is not a desirable outcome in the Bible. But we want to ask you something about Jesus. Was Jesus, when he came to earth, one who avoided sweat? Was he like these priests who wore all the good clothing and he never raised a sweat on his face? Do we not see that in the New Testament that Jesus is the one who redeems our sweat? As we read in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 44, we see him as one who is in the middle of his temptation to walk away from the cross. And it says in Luke 22, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When Christ came to earth, was he a fellow struggler or was he floating above it all without a trace of perspiration? No, he sweat and it was the worst kind of sweat. It was the sweat born of emotional grief so that the blood vessels in your face began to pop. Maybe his blood pressure was going off the map. I don't know how that worked. 
but he was dropping like drop sweating like drops of blood falling to the ground christ put his shoulder to the wheel harder than us all his work as the true adam and the true priest would be an intense, costly, and sacrificial labor, as Glenn Scrivener puts it. He joined us in our cursed state, rolled up his sleeves, and got to work. He didn't say, no sweat. He raised a sweat. And he sweat drops of blood in the garden, and then he poured out rivers of blood at the cross. You see, Jesus is the one who is the cursed one. He is the one that took upon us himself what should have come to us. We think about the pains of childbirth. We think about what women go through in travail because they're suffering. If you turn over with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians and chapter 5, you'll see there a reference to a struggle, the struggle of childbirth. 1 Thessalonians 5.3, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So that's a reference to the literal uh, uh, suffering when the second coming happens, and it's compared to the labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Well, guess what Jesus went through? In Isaiah 53, verse 11, in the Septuagint version, it says, we read of the travail of Christ's soul, the labor of his soul when he was being given over as the suffering servant. And if you turn to Acts chapter 2 and 24, you see there, when God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death. Those pains of death are the, exactly the same word, or deny, which are found in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. The travail of the woman, the travail of childbirth, which is uh, the sentence given to woman, that is released in Jesus Christ and at the last day, when he comes in glory, there will be no such pain. And he went through that pain at the cross. Do thorns come with sin? Yes, we read of them here in Genesis 3 and verse 18. There are thorns in the ground, both thorns and thistles it shall bring for you. Did Jesus wear a crown of thorns? Yes, he did at the cross of Calvary. Did sorrow come in with sin? Yes, there's sorrow. 3.16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. And yet we read of Christ. Matthew 26 and 38. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Dear flock, yeah, sentence has come upon us. And we experience this chastening of God. It is meant to drive us, the hardworking man who is filled with aches and pains and his body's falling apart at 55 and he has another 10 years to go to retirement. And he's wondering, how can I get through this? 
That is meant to bring us in humility before God. Oh, God, help me with my pain. Help me with my struggle. Help me with my thorns and thistles in my life. And I confess I am in a fallen condition and I am a sinner. But Lord, deliver me, strengthen me in Jesus Christ. And the woman going through childbirth, she shall ever and always until Christ comes again in glory, says, yes, my sorrow is multiplied. And even as I look at my children, I don't know what's going on sometimes. But Lord, I am yours. I give them to you. And I know that your sorrow meets mine and brings healing to my heart, even as I recognize the sentence of the fall. Today, recognize that Jesus is here for you and that he, having borne our sorrows, helps you through your earthly experience of this ongoing sentence as we are part of this age. And may you trust in Jesus to deliver you even unto life eternal, where there will be no more sorrows nor tears to fall from your eyes forever. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, bless this congregation. May we serve you. May we bear under the sorrows that is part of our lives as mothers and as working people. May we know that your grace has been pronounced already and that we are part of your plan and your purpose as we are identified with Christ as our head. Let us live, O oh God, in the strength of your gospel where Jesus has come for us to bear our sorrows. In Jesus' name, amen.